Well, thank you, um, and thank you all for coming out on this absolutely dismal day. Um, but I think it's worth it, and I hope you've all had a chance to look at the exhibition at the Freud Museum, which from which um, this series has sprung, although it's originally sprung from, from Lisa's uh, book of the same name. I'm going to be a really minimal chair because, A, it's not necessary. These, t these two women have an awful lot to say um, from very different perspectives, but yet which intertwine. And because they both um, prepared some introductory remarks uh, before we have a conversation, which we will have, I think, probably between the three of us and then with the larger audience. So, Sally, if you can you... What do put, I do with it? You put it in your pocket <laughs> or you clip it to your waist. Is that okay? Yep. Now, can I just ask everybody to not just quiet their phones. You've actually got to turn them off because... We don't have the fanciest sound equipment here, and everything is made for um, possibility of it being broadcast through, you know, through whatever. Can't remember the name right now. So, but you have to turn your phone off because it otherwise interferes. So please take the second to do that. Not just on flight mode, right? But absolutely off, please. And if you can't hear, please let us know, because otherwise it's extremely tedious that if you miss a third of what somebody's saying. So just stick your hand up, wave if you can't. Um, okay. I'm now going to ask Sally to make some introductory remarks. Okay. Uh, thank you, Susie. And can you hear me at the back? Yes? I mean, I'd like to. I'd like to begin actually while you're while you're sitting comfortably, people, uh, by thanking Susie Orbach very much on on the part on the on behalf of Jacqueline and I for stepping in and and chairing this um, event, which uh, which is to kind of celebrate uh, the exhibition and the book. And I'm going to begin by saying something about the book as a way of getting into some thoughts on feminism in the long 19th century and the ways in which feminists took up the issue of women, suffering women, um, and used them for, to make political demands. So Jacqueline tells me she's got a couple of jokes. I've got very few. <laughs> okay, it's a, so the book itself, Mad, Bad and Sad, is gripping and lucid history of modern madness since the mid-18th century when the emergence of a new profession of mad doctors, forerunners of psychiatrists, the alienists, which was a term coined by Philippe Pinel, meaning the mad were alienated from the world. A little louder. Shit. There it is. It's not you. It's not you. It's Francisco. Oh. Okay, so I'm going to... Um, I mean, the term... The book begins with the, with the from the sort of mid end of the 18th century, when madness emerged at the time of the French Revolution, and it traces uh, the history of modern madness, uh, uh, the, the diagnosis of madness, and the institutions and the cures that the new mad doctors, who were then known as alienists, uh, devised, and Lisa tells the story through dramatized case histories. She opens with the, with the story of Mary Lamb, the sister of Charles Lamb, 
who murdered their mother and then was very tenderly cared for inside and outside um, of an institution for a while and then by her brother uh, until he died. And uh, so there's, the, the story is, 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 is told through these case histories as well as through um, statistics um, and alarmingly high numbers of um, the insane, of mentally ill, of patients and their doctors. And uh, the women who were mentally ill drive, um, who fell ill, Lisa, as Lisa describes, driven there by sadness or grief or, in, or, or badness uh, or um, uh, overwhelmed by, by sudden fits of madness, delirium, fevers, hallucinations, and so on. Um, or, or, or just un, sort of unbearable uh, depression, uh, are the focus of the narrative. And she explains that she takes women, and women drive the narrative, Lisa Pinionese argues, uh, but partly because they're absolute, the, the presence of women, the predominance, predominance of women, are unavoidable in contemporary statistics. One in five women today suffer from depression, um, according to uh, recent research, and many more, just to take two sort of instances, and many more young women uh, than young men uh, attempt suicide. Um, and it's probable, she argues, that women predominate in psychotherapeutic treatments today. I don't like to speak about this in front of Susie, but she can correct me if this is wrong. And um, women uh, also uh, are sort of crowd into the therapeutic, psychotherapeutic uh, professions. Um, I'm so sorry. But, you know, this, this kind of alarm is related to women's alarm in the it's 19th century. So, I think we're, you can't what? Can people hear Okay, so I think what this means, Sally, can you is that the fact that you've been a university professor and lecturer, would it help if you stood? Would you project more? Can you, you hear? Mind? Can you hear at the back? No. Yes. Is that better? I'm sorry. I mean, I, we won't interpret this, but we will hope that this will allow her voice to be heard. Okay. Where am I? Um, so I'm. I'm just running through. It is what I'm doing, isn't it? Apparently, but it's... It's, only, it's just stereo. It's I the body. Take, shall I take it off? And, oh, no, I've got to record it. I'm so sorry. I don't know. I think it is something I'm doing. Um, right. Would you prefer a handheld? So, Lisa, um, fem I've never had this trouble before. I just wanted to know would it is the subject. Sally, would you prefer to be a rock star? <coughs> oh, no, well, I don't know, actually. Okay. Well, but we probably need to cut the other one so you yeah, don't get both. Yeah, we can see the number on the other one. You can see the number on the um, the reasons why she ha chose, she used women to drive the narrative are all those reasons I've just given. I won't repeat them. And also because, as she says, 
Her previous in books include Freud's Women, which some of you will know, and um, her forthcoming book, which is to be published in April, which is going to be called Trials of Passion. So she's, she's sort of absorbed in this subject, and she says that this is the book, in a sense, that she has been working on all her life. Uh, so the development of modern madness um, in, the, in, the, in this uh, development of, 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 of modern madness, there's a remarkable consistency throughout the long 19th century on the diagnosis of madness. I found this actually one of the most interesting, interesting points that she makes in the book. Uh, in, for example, 1810, in a list by the doctor, William uh, Black, of the patients, of the ills that the patients at Bethlehem Hospital suffered from, the majority of them suffered from grief, religion, fevers, childbed, or family and hereditary. And then there were little sort of a handful who suffered from envy, jealousy, love, but, but nothing like the hundreds um, or tens of hundreds who, who, who suffered from grief, religion, fevers, childbed, family and hereditary for heredity um, the re and and uh, th those sort of symptoms appear again and again throughout the long 19th century um, with women uh, I mean uh, Pinel himself citizen Philippe Pinel the revolutionary who opened uh, who, who's in the exhibition uh, the, the famous mm. painting of him opening the asylums uh, and letting the insane out on the eve of the, um, uh, uh, or in the middle of the French Revolution, um, he, uh, he suggested that culture, ideas and environment, and the bodily selves, as well as the family, made people insane in different ways. Life itself, which is a refrain that Lisa uses throughout the book, childbirth, um, uh, 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 for women, but also the menopause and menstruation, death, war, poverty, life itself, um, afflicted people and drove them mad uh, throughout, uh, as I say, the long uh, 19th century. And um, feminism, at the same time, also uh, measured and described women's suffering in this period. They entered the asylums and the workhouses and the homes in which women of the working classes, of the poor, but also some of the well-to-do and the well-educated were assembled, as well as the slums and the factories and the workshop. But they, in, with that suffering, uh, with its measurement and amassing, as it were, uh, they made something else. They made political demands um, feminism, as you know, is about giving women a voice. They made political demands. They demanded new laws. They made the law. And they determined or shaped new relationships between human need and um, relations between the sexes and sexual desire in particular. And uh, they made demands about, as you know, education, uh, property, industry, the vote, and a better sexual, uh, 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 equal sexual relations, which interestingly, some of the 
in particular the moral uh, doctors, the ones who advocated moral reform in the early 19th century, and then again at the turn of the century, the private doctors that Lisa writes about, the psychoanalysts and their um, sort of more sympathetic, humane, humanitarian uh, mad doctors also advocated those forms of reform. So, uh, as I've said, I don't know the time. How am I doing? Mm -hmm. um, yes, I want to just say something about citizen Philippe Pinel, because he was the one who released the asylums, the, the, uh, the insane from asylums at the time of the French Revolution, because he was so uh, wonderfully uh, sympathetic, at least to me. And he released, um, he re as he released them, he also developed new ways of treating them. Um, he, tre he, he, he thought madness, he, he observed the mad or the insane. Um, he listened to them, he wrote down their stories. Um, and, and their symptoms, and the stories they told them about their disease, and in this way built up a body of research, of classification and as, as, as cures. And modern in this context means secular rather than religious, the resting away of the questions of delirium and hallucinations, witchcraft, sort of in, uh, 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 what we now call um, forms of insanity from the clergy. And the method of work was observation and research, a move away from anecdote and experience, and a focus on the power of reason and of will, but also of reorganizing the passions, reordering the emotions. And in the early uh, decades of the 20th century, Pinel inaugurated at the Salpetriere in Paris, in the early de first decades of the 19th century, a regime of kindness, occupation, order, at least um, in intention. This, of course, was the period that Michel Foucault uh, talked about as inaugurating a period of surveillance and, um, and so on, power knowledge. Pinel's focus was on the imagination and the passions. The mad were very close to ourselves, and their symptoms expressed the times, as he put it. In 1837, someone described, a follower of, of Pinel described um, uh, in uh, people who are mad. Mad behavior from those uh, they, they learn from those around them and in their agitation they enact the passions that the culture provides. Madness, la folie, is a kind of morbid proteus. It is the, it is the transitory and changing image of the interests that govern men, of the emotions that agitate them and like the world, a lunatic of asylum is a mosaic of the passions. That was 1837. So, until the middle of the 19th century, um, the treatment, the moral treatments, were humane and optimistic, and it was, it was thought that the insane could be cured and could be, as it were, reintroduced to ordinary people, that sanity was fragile, and that um, madness was temporary and it only anyway affected part of the intellect or part of the passions or some of the passions and not, and not all of them. I could go on about this uh, more, but I won't because Lisa does and you hopefully will read the book. Um, France and Germany diagnosed and classified symptoms of madness, but it was Britain's institutions for the poor and the sick 
and the insane that, uh, as it were, were the sort of pragmatic examples of what to do with them. Um, let's just have a sip of water. There's a very powerful and famous description by Hannah, Harriet Martineau, the feminist political economist, whose visit to Hanwell, the first large asylum for the insane, which was soon filled with thousands of people um, by the 1840s and 1850s, um, of whom perhaps a percentage of them were, were um, severely insane. Uh, her famous visit, she described industry and order from the moment she entered the grounds surrounding the asylum, which was well tended by gardeners and servants and agricultural workers. And she praised the people who ran the asylum, in particular Mrs. Ellis, the wife of the um, director, whose calm manner with patients, um, she sat them down and listened to them and asked them to stop or waited till they'd calmed down from their deliriums or their um, hysterical symptoms. She subdued them, listened to them, and then she would um, uh, find them something to do, talk them through uh, their, dis their disorders or their disordered senses, their disordered passions in the language of the time. And um, she tried to... Uh, she ordered a pony and chase, Mrs. Ellis, who ran the Hanwell Institute, and she wanted to drive patients... Um, into the village uh, for, to go to church, to attend church, uh, to meet with the villagers uh, nearby in order to ease their transition back into the communities from which they came. In fact, um, this experiment failed. Uh, people outside the institution were frightened of the insane, and the, the uh, experiment didn't work, so it ceased. So by the mid-century... Overcrowding in these huge um, institutions, which had been built in Britain, but also in um, France and in Germany, uh, and the um, shortage of money and time, but also pessimism, had begun to um, erode the optimism and humane methods of treatment of the mad. But also new ideas had come in, new ideas of heredity and degeneration from city life. And I'm afraid the names of Charles Darwin, um, Herbert Spencer, I'm not so afraid about that, and the wretched Henry Maudsley, who was a biological hereditarian of extraordinary endeavor and, and you know, energy. And who had a, and, and they, uh, Maudsley in particular, um, developed uh, an idea of, or a very pernicious um, sense of, um, what uh, madness meant and how it was uh, degenerative, hereditary, and it particularly afflicted the weak, of whom and among whom women, of course, predominated. And it was a very, he, there's a very pernicious account of femininity condemning women to um, domesticity, to, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's really, really, um, uh, it, it's worse than that, a kind of Oh, a kind of awful, visceral descriptions of, of uh, what happens to women if they study too much or don't have babies or don't love men and don't love and go mad. Um, I mean, their bodies, you know, the, and, the, and the pleasure in describing 
the depredations to the body are interesting. Um, so historically, women have predominated in the science. This is by the 1870s, 1880s, and 1890s. In the large public institutions, the methods of treatment were uh, much less um, optimistic, less humane. Of course, there were differences, but they were less humane and so on. And um, uh, women predominated in the asylums and in the other institutions. This was partly because of poverty, but also because of the life cycle of a woman, from menstruation to menopause. Women were regarded as more vulnerable, but they were also more vulnerable because they were poor. Arguably, until 1960 and the advent of the pill, uh, few women were ever free from the reproductive consequences of sexuality or the heterosexual imperative, as the women's liberation movement of the 1970s used to put it. It was arguable, it's arguable indeed, how free women are today from the consequences of sexual desire and of men's violence and power. But in the 19th century, when wages for women were one-third uh, to one-quarter of that of men's in domestic service, in factory employment, or in, uh, on the land, Women without political voice or representation slipped through the interstices of what the Victorians like to call the civilized society and filled the asylums and the poor, uh, the workhouses and so on. And um, there, many feminists went to uh, meet them and greet them. And I'm going to jump a bit and just say something about, um, which it will be well known to some of you, but just to remind you, um, of the uh, work that feminists did among these women filling the asylums and the workhouses, working among um, the suffering women that were so carefully described by the mad doctors and treated in rather brutal, sometimes by the end of the century, rather brutal conditions, um, not fed properly and so on. But, uh, but feminists like Harriet Martineau argued for work and for education and for occupation and for the um, uh, 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 right to, um, in particular, earn their own living. And I'm just going to say something about a couple of feminists only, very briefly. Josephine Butler, the Unitarian, um, beautiful, rich, educated daughter of the anti-slavery campaigner, who... Uh, was born in the early decade, in the 1820s, 30s, and she married a minister, and um, she was an active feminist. She was the mother of four children. She lived in Oxford and in, in the Midlands and um, Liverpool. And her youngest child, her small daughter, died in a terrible accident in 1864. And she was already, as I say, an active feminist, working for the education of women, the employment of women, and so on. And this was an, put a, put a center into a terrible depression and a, the death of her daughter, a terrible depression and her husband, terrible decline. But she went out, she said, to seek a suffering deeper than my own. And through um, visiting the poor in the workhouses and sitting down with them and working in the opium um, floors of the, of the workhouses in Liverpool. She came to know women, she talked to them, she listened to their stories. Um, she came to know them in a way that she hadn't known them before. 
and she identified with their suffering. And in her memoirs and her letters, she writes using a Christian ethic, um, and she uses a language of, um, of, uh, uh, of extreme religious emoli, um, uh, emotion. And she identifies with Christ as well as the suffering women, and she, as it were, takes strength from Christ speaking through her and the women, the suffering um, paupers and um, people, women in the asylum and the prostitutes whom she met. But she also was deeply pragmatic, like all feminists at the time, and she demanded a repeal of the law against contagious diseases, and she argued for prostitution as an economic question. It was not a sexual question, it was an economic question, and it was a matter of the civil liberties and the civil rights of all women. To arrest one woman, um, or to pick up one woman on the streets of Liverpool, and to accuse them of... Um, of uh, being a prostitute was to insult all women and to deprive all women, irrespective of their birth or class, of their civil liberties. So she, and she held indignation meetings, as they were called, as well as prayer meetings. So she was uncompromising in her campaign. And the identification with suffering, with suffering women, also went both ways. It's very rare to hear the voice of the, of, of the poor themselves, let alone the mentally ill or the incarcerated speaking. But occasionally in her diaries you can hear them. And the next, this, uh, that's one example. The second example is of, of, of a feminist who also went out poor peopling, as Florence Nightingale called it, visiting, visiting places where poorer women were massed. Uh, Florence Nightingale had very little time for it and she called it poor peopling. Mari Stopes, as Mari Stopes, she was a bio biologist, and I'm deliberately picking feminists who are not, as it were, politically correct in every sense of the word. She was a eugenicist, she was a scientist, and she spoke in a very heightened, dramatic language, rather like some of the mad doctors of the long 19th century. I count the 19th century as going on until 1929, by the way. Um, the Great Depression. Um, and she spoke in this very heightened, dramatic language of the Holocaust of embryos. She talked about the lashings of suffering womanhood, women, you know, suffering women, working women being outside of history. But she put this knowledge to good, practical use. And she built up, as the historian Deborah Cohen has, sh has shown, clinics in which working women, she set them up in working-class districts, clinics where women could enter of their own accord, in privacy, um, uh, pretty, well-painted, well-decorated um, clinics which, where women nurses and women doctors treated them, where they were given privacy, they were addressed um, by, their, by, their, by their surnames and their proper names, they were given names, they were given dignity when they went into the birth control clinics and um, asked for help. And when she published her book called Mother England in 1930, which was Letters from Working Women and Some Working Men, which appeared at the same time as Sylvia Pankhurst's Save the Mothers. Uh, Mari Stokes, who gave this you know, anguished kind of account of the anguish and suffering of you know, all the women who suffer and suffer and suffer, but the letters that she published, one after another, speak of love, of 20 years of childbearing and still loving their husbands, loving their children, wanting um, 
uh, knowledge, wanting the women wanting knowledge, wanting freedom, wanting independence. So she listened, as well as being um, the, her eugenics went to the background of her mind and what came to the foreground of her practical work for women um, was, was uh, practical reforms, as they were known. I just want to finish with the point that these feminists built up, as it were, uh, a body of research and a, uh, a, 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 they built it up on a, on, a, on a kind of sequence and series of identifications and cross-identifications with women less fortunate than themselves, as they put it sometimes, with their suffering sisterhood, uh, but also with men who supported them. And the, and the identifications went both ways. And they build up a series of demands which were not utopian, uh, were not idealistic. Uh, they were part of the backbone of social democracy in the 20th century, of welfare reform. And uh, it's there as well in... Uh, the beginnings uh, uh, among the poor, uh, that the beginnings of psychoanalysis in Britain began. It was a social question, Ernest Jones um, uh, remembered in his, in his um, autobiography, the question of, um, of, of treating um, the poor. It was a social question. And the first practicing psychoanalysts in Britain were Ernest Jones himself and David Eder, who was also um, a socialist and a Zionist and um, uh, interested in psychoanalysis. Thank you. Thank you. I don't think I need this. Um, I think I want to just pick up a couple of things before we go to Jacqueline uh, to bring us up to the present day, which you've just done, actually. But... Um, one of the things I was thinking about was that when we opened the Women's Therapy Center, and I said this last week, if anybody's in the audience, I apologize, in 1976, one of the first people who showed up was a woman who'd been, as she described it, in the local bin, which was Freeham, Barnet. And she said, ever so lovely in there, got, you, got looked after, got your cups of tea, kept warm, and was fed. Didn't have to do anything. And this was a complete revelation to radical feminists, psychoanalytically oriented, who had not understood the level of, we thought we understood the level of burden, of caring. But the fact that this was the first opportunity that this woman had had to receive anything, and I'm not sure she would have been able to receive it for very long, because those were psychological issues, but the very fact that that was what she said, was very interesting to me. So I wanted to just alert people to the links between then and now. Well, when we still had the asylum movement, we don't have it anymore. Um, another thing that I thought was very interesting about when you're talking about the beginning of the 19th century and the beginning of the capacity to let women talk is really the beginning of what I think is always told, called the talking cure, but I actually think is the listening cure as much as it is the talking cure, because it's the capacity to have somebody who listens, who receives what you're saying, as much as it is to be able to find the many varied, rich words. Um, the third bit I wanted to pick up was that in this, what I think Lisa does very beautifully in this book is to show 
how you could be mad and not mad. And really, psychoanalysis has a horrible reputation about this. You are diagnosed, even though it looks like it's very liberal. And it's only really been in the last 25 years with the notion of dissociation and multiple self-states that you have this idea at the center of the psyche that we have very mad bits as well as bits that aren't only defensively sane but are okay as well. And I think this is very interesting, the link between that idea that, that Lisa brings us from the historical record and that you highlighted and the modern practice of understanding these dissociated self-states. And the last thing I want to say, which is also a class point, is that in my experience, um, just as hysteria was a sort of kosher appellation for troubled women in the 19th century of a certain class, so in my own experience of encountering women with very, very troubled eating, of an anorectic nature in the late 70s and early 80s and 90s, um, that whenever I would go to talk about it in conventional medical settings or psychoanalytic settings, but mainly medical settings, I would be told that all of the patients that I was seeing were upper-middle-class, highly accomplished women, as opposed to the actual practice that was actually that I had, where women were completely across the the age divide, the class divide, and the ethnic divide. So the capacity of the mental health system or the institution to select certain women as being um, not available but allowed to have treatment and to have respect and for others to be seen as they're putting it on, they're shirkers. The, the, the literal words used in the 19th century are exactly the same words as in, the, as, as in the late 20th century, and the same treatments pertain. But anyway, now I'm turning to, I hope I've made a bridge, maybe I haven't. <laughs> no, that's great. That's to great. Jacqueline. Okay, can you hear me? Maybe you should stand. No, they can hear me. Everybody's <laughs> nodding. Good, so it's okay. It's all fine. Uh, well, first of all, to thank Sally and Susie, and again, to repeat what Sally said about how great it is that Susie stepped in this evening. So I can't think of a platform I'd rather be on than with Sally Alexander and Susie Orbach. So I'm sort of thrilled to be here, as well as very anxious. Um, I think we could help you with that. You can help me. <laughs> They're not really jokes, but I was thinking when I was preparing for this evening that the only women I like, am interested in, and have written about over the last several decades have been either crazy or on the edge of being crazy. Um, and I just realized that I loved what Susie just said about mad and not mad, um, which is to say that there's something about the category of madness in relationship to women, which I think is describing something which we need another vocabulary for, in a way. Um, and I also realized when I was thinking about this evening, and I know what I'm going to say now is wrong, okay, which is that when women are mad, I think they have, as Sally beautifully quoted it from Lisa's book, slipped through the interstices of civilized society. And of course, psychoanalysis is a brilliant critique of the price of civilized society and its capacity for deranging and rendering inoperative the people it's trying to train to its purpose. Um, 
And I was thinking, I'm going to risk this, although I've got no evidence for it whatsoever, which is that when women are crazy, it's because they've slipped through the interstices of civilized society. But the craziness in men that I've tended to encounter in my own life, it's when they are pushed to an exaggeration of masculinity, of what it means to be a man. So I think there is a radical asymmetry in what constitutes madness or is defined as madness for men and women. And I'm just remembering something that B. Campbell, the wonderful feminist activist and writer, once said when she was talking about the difference between male left groups and feminists. And she said, you go to one of these Trotskyist groups, she's talking about the 70s, she said, all these men, she said, are strutting around, they really know they've got the truth, right? They absolutely know. She said, you then go to a feminist meeting and all the women are there because they've no idea what they think about anything and they're so miserable. And so there's sort of like a complete difference between what constitutes political revolt or participation for the two sexes. I think Lisa's book manages to avoid three traps in relationship to hysteria, which we're partly here to talk about. This evening, one I would call the idealization, one I would call the aestheticization, and one I would call the too rapid politicization of hysteria. And I think the book takes all, and also therefore none, of these powers. And it seems to me she doesn't exactly, she doesn't exactly or ever really diagnose. She describes, and although that might sound very neutral, in the context of this book, it's a really rather radical step to have taken. Because what I felt she was doing as I was looking back through the book is she's describing the different moments in the definition of madness and the different ruses that women have to go halfway to meet those definitions and to subvert them. So the book becomes a kind of shapeshifter. And it's huge volume. It's a very long book, right? It's huge volume is a tribute to the manifold transformations of women's so-called madness and the fact that it can never be captured in any simple theoretical or medical way, which is not to say that many of the mind doctors have not tried to do so. So this made me think that women's so-called madness was in itself a capacity which endlessly permutes itself in order to thwart the interventions of the mostly male mind doctors. It's because it can only exist by escaping or violating the law of what a woman is meant to be, that it is a shapeshifter. So she did not so much write a book about a subject as have the subject dictate the sinuousness and variety of shapes that she had to trace. Sorry, is this, is this okay, the sound system? Yeah, it is okay. Um, so then my question became, how do we give reason to what is called madness without denying suffering and without an idealization or an over-hasty politicization? I very much like the formula that the symptoms express the times. And the book starts, as Sally said, with Mary Lamb, um, and Charles Lamb says about her, our mother never understood her right, which made me think that madness might also be a way of not being read, as well as a response to not having been heard. And she also says, madness, Mary bore the madness for the entire family. So I'm very interested in the idea that one person's madness is the vehicle for allowing a whole other group of people to ignore what is actually really going on. And at the end, I'll get to, I might get to Monroe, who I feel went mad, if that's what she did, um, as a way of carrying the can mm -hmm. for the great family of man that calls itself America. Okay, and also noticed in relationship to Mary Lamb, a remarkable moment um, in Charles Lamb's description of her where he says, I have seen her. 
I found her this morning calm and serene, far from, very far from an indecent, forgetful serenity. She has a most affectionate and tender concern for what has happened. And I read this several times, and I thought, she, he is describing her relationship to her act of violence as if she was nursing a child. We should say that her madness and her violence becomes a kind of precious object in her soul. And I thought that was very, very striking. Celia Brandness goes mad under siege in India. It's as if she is carrying the illness of colonial Britain. She's carrying the illness of imperialism. She knows that it is not possible to be sane when you're under siege and you're killing natives left, right, and center. So then my question became, is Lisa's book a psychoanalytic book? She does say psychoanalysis is a cornerstone in making a particular type of human. And she describes psychoanalysis as a narrative of developing female sexuality and the conflicts on which it founders. This sent me to Juliet Mitchell's book, Mad Men and Medusas, which is her book on hysteria that was published about 10 years ago now, I think. And what Juliet Mitchell says is, does the social organization of humankind explain the feminization of hysteria? And she argues, in fact, that hysteria is what cannot be tolerated. It's what society and the medical profession, and in fact psychoanalysis itself, has had repeatedly to repudiate. But then she talks about um, certain kinds of theoretical oversight. And she says, at the time of the dominance of hysteria and the foundation of psychoanalysis, the problems and permutations of psychosexuality received all the emphasis as the explanatory factor. Death did not feature. Now, that really brought me short, and it made me think of what Sally said when she listed William Black's uh, chart of what drives people crazy. I noticed grief was at the top, right? Let's say grief. And rereading Juliet Mitchell's book, which is, has become renowned for its emphasis on siblings and the precipitation of the shock of hysteria, I realized she was talking quite a lot about the problem of death and grief. And she says it is precisely because both death and giving birth involve the death of the subject or the subject's previous ego that hysteria uses imitations of both. So this sent me back to Anna O. Oh. Now, the case of Anna O oh is, as some of you will know, the inaugurating moment of psychoanalysis. Mm -hmm. And whilst I was reading Anna O, oh, I was also teaching in a class on psychoanalysis and modern culture at Queen Mary, Freud's thoughts for the time on war and death. And I was very, very struck with a passage which is quite remarkable which is when Freud assigns the origins of ethical life to the so-called primitive sitting beside the dead, grieved, and hated relative, which is to say that Freud thinks ethics arises at the moment when you have to confront the stranger who is or was the person who you most loved. And that image of the so-called primitive sitting beside the, the, beside the deathbed or the dying of the person that he or she loves, goes hand in hand with another point that Freud makes, which is that in so-called primitive societies, and he's not being ethnocentric because they get the privilege of this analysis, the so-called primitive, when men return from war, they're required to sit outside the community and to go into state of mourning and to go through certain rituals and to grieve for the people they had killed. And only when they had done that were they allowed to re-enter 
the village. And he said, this shows primitive man has a vein of ethical sensitivity which has been lost in civilized society. Now, what is Anna O doing? Anna O is sitting beside her dying father. She's sitting beside her dying father in a state of grief and rage. Her symptoms are precipitated when she is removed from his care, something she also longs to be free of. And as Julia Mitchell points out in her book, she sees, she goes, one of her most moments is when she walks into the room and sees her face in the mirror, but it is not her face. It is the death's head of her dying father. So I just want to suggest we might put these two moments in Freud's thinking together. The vein of ethical sensitivity lost to civilized man. And Anna O oh in a state of grief and rage against her most cherished paternal object. And suggest that we might take from that not an idealization of hysteria, not an aestheticization of it, not a politicization, maybe a bit of all of them, but the idea that hysteria is a form of attunement. I say it's a way of being in touch with something which is also unbearable to know. Okay, so that's... And she was, of course, markedly intelligent, great imaginative and poetic gifts. She also had a sympathetic kindness, so that Brewer says at one point... She was helped through her hysterical phases by being allowed to look after other people. So it's not that she didn't want to care. She absolutely wanted to care, and she also hated the obligations it put on her. She was bubbling over with intellectual vitality, but she led an extremely monotonous existence in her puritanically-minded family. <laughs> okay, so I just want to uh, go from there. To, I'm going to make a leap now to the present day. And I found myself asking, as a result of this train of thought, what were Sylvia Plath and Marilyn Monroe doing in this book? Now, that's not a critique of the book, because it's not what on earth are they doing here. It's actually, what are they doing? Okay, what are these two extraordinary women doing there? Because I have real problem in classifying either of them as mad nor indeed sad or bad. In fact, I don't think they fit, but I think they don't fit in a way which is the point of the book, which is that the women who are in this book are there because they don't fit. And it's as much about the classification of their disorder as it is an actual agreement that they have something which they need to be cured of. Right? I think it's a very precarious boundary between those two things. So if I take hysteria and or madness as a type of attunement. I think we need to understand this to go to Plath's poetry. And I'm going to read you, if you'll forgive me, I'm going to read you a poem, okay? This is uh, late in Plath's life, and it's called Mary's Song. Do any of you know this poem? Plath's Mary's Song. <laughs> not terribly well known, not nearly as well known as Daddy, but you'll see she makes some of the moves in this poem that she also makes in that poem. The Sunday lamb cracks in its fat. The fat sacrifices its opacity. A window holy gold. The fire makes it precious. The same fire melting the tallow heretics, ousting the Jews. Their thick palls float over the cicatrix of Poland, burnt out Germany. They do not die. Grey birds obsess my heart. Mouth ash, ash of eye, 
they settle on the high precipice that emptied one man into space. The ovens glowed like heavens, incandescent. It is a heart, this holocaust I walk in. O golden child, the world will kill and eat. Now, for me, this is Plath at her most powerful. And what I think is so incredible about it is that it is a grief poem. And it's a poem for the death of the child that she says will happen. So it relates to what Sally said about Josephine Butler's child. But it's also a grief poem for the Second World War. And it's a grief poem for the inability to take the remnants of that war psychically on board. So crucially, she says, they do not die. They do not die. Grey birds obsess my heart. Mouth ash, ash of eye, they settle. So I think it's a question about the, what, what um, the Michaliks would call the inability to mourn. Right? It's, it's a question about a, pub, a collective inability to mourn, which then leaves the ashes and the birds strewn over the precipices of the world, which then plunges a man into space as a form of affirmation, which, of course, in this poem is powerless against the death to come and the Holocaust with which she ends the poem. And what I love about the poem is that she doesn't say, it is my heart. It is a heart, this Holocaust I walk in. You could spend a lot of time thinking about where is the speaker of the poem in this. Something is there. She walks in it, but it's not her heart. Which is to say the poem enacts a kind of dissociation of belonging and participation in a history she's both trying to get to and can't get to in the very syntax of the poem. So I just want to suggest to you that um, Sylvia Plath, and when I wrote about her years ago, more than two decades ago, I never wanted to go into the question of whether she was mentally disturbed or not. I found it of absolutely no interest whatsoever. But this made me think I should think about it again. And what I felt was that if that is true that she was, then what matters is the transformations and the slipping through the interstices of civilization, which she then has articulated in extraordinary poems. I hope you agree. Like Mary's song. How are we doing for time? No, I think we need. Do we need to stop in a minute? I think if in a minute. Because in, we in can, a minute? Yes, give us another minute and then we One more only... minute. Oh, no, well, why do, actually, why don't I stop there? And if Monroe comes up in the discussion, she can come up in the discussion. Because I think it's important. It's, it's okay. nearly 8 o'clock. I'll stop there. I'll stop with Platt. Thank you. Um, I want Sally and you to have a bit of a brief conversation, but I also want to get in on it. And, we need you to. Um, I like your idea of the hysteria of being a form of cultural attunement, but I think I might want to say, because I think it's a very clever idea, is it a form of over-attunement? Is it, it, does it, what it represents is a, where the mad piece is, is in order to live, we've got to mute certain things because otherwise we, we are over-attuned. So that's, I think, and if I think about that in relation to being a practicing therapist, without wanting to rob people of their, their grief and their insights and their complexity of it, is that what you're trying to do in that, what I would say is that in that attunement is to hear other voices that can make it possible to live. So, 
I'm not, I'm not going to answer that because I think it's a statement about what you feel you have to do. And I'm, I'm, I don't know I'm, if that's what I feel I have to do. I think it's what the process does. And I don't know whether that's corrupt or whatever it is, but that's what it made me think. Can I say something in response? Then? Please. Which is that this is going to move somewhere which might sound completely different, but it's the question of sexu sexuality, just for a second. When I'm trying to persuade students of the radical nature of psychoanalysis, and I talk about the confounding of sexual identity that Freud ushers into the notion of normality, which is how I see it. I ask, well, I have been asking, now the statement has a rather different answer, but one of the questions I would ask them is, where in the culture can a woman go and say, I'm not a woman, I am a man, and not be dismissed as in need of serious medical attention? And I'm thinking of Freud's footnote in the three essays where he says, psychoanalysis considers we have all made a homosexual object in the unconscious, and freedom to range over all objects is, is something that is true in unconscious life, and far from seeing the attraction of men to women as a natural biological phenomenon, we think it is a problem that needs explaining. Mm -hmm. Okay? We're in the culture. Can you imagine? You go and see your doctor, you say, I've got a terrible problem. I'm only attracted to people of the opposite sex. Okay, so my question is, where can you go in the culture to speak these forms of insanity? Well, of course, today, with the discourse on transsexuality mm -hmm. and the changes in, in the politics of gay identity, mm -hmm. you can now say it on the street. But nonetheless, I think psychoanalysis wear ahead on that. So I'm just, I just what I want to put back to you is, isn't psychoanalysis all, also the place where you can tolerate what the culture can't hear? And also, in relationship to Anna O., tolerate forms of grief and pain that are precisely unmanageable and inaudible in the wider culture, but isn't your task also to create a space in which that can just be experienced? Yes, I, I, of course that's primarily your, there's, there's no question that what you do is you hear listening, the cost, as you said, listening. but you're hearing the cost, the enormous cost of not just that particular person's struggle to be a human being in the culture, but the struggle of those who brought her up or him up. Their subjectivity. You hear the shrinking and the, 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 sac the, the, the problems in their s sexual subjectivity. And whoever brought them up, whether it's parents, nannies, aunties, you hear all of that. So you're not just hearing a fraction of culture at that moment. You're hearing the historical price of all of those kinds of things. So of course that's precisely what one does. But it's a very complex place and it's really not what we're talking about today, but it made me really think about the challenge, not just about what trans is. And of course, I mean, if we were sitting in New York, there would be trans therapists here who would have contested, you know, the very conversation we were having. Um, which is why would they have contested the very conversation? We're because having? you cannot, because it's not appropriate to to even make categories of women and men oh, anymore, um, and femininities and right. So there would be all of that contestation going on, which is both very challenging and very very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, but wait, I lost my train of thought. You two talk to each other for a minute. <laughs> Well, I'm finding it very difficult. I mean, I'd quite like to open it up, but I'm also finding it difficult because what I'd really like is um, is to be in, you know, to, is to kind of have a session with Susie. 
<laughs> but um, we can't do that. Here. But we can't do that here. <laughs> no, but you almost, <laughs> you know. Um, I wanted. To, I, I. I just think I've got nothing to say really, except I just want to make a leap, and I want to put 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 into the heads of people sitting in this audience a wonderful new book that's coming out by Barbara Taylor. Which is um, Death of the Asylum. Death, the, the, the Last, last Asylum. Oh, sorry, The Last Asylum. A memoir of Good slip. And it's an extraordinary book. And she, there are two, there are two things she says. One of which relates very strongly to what Jacqueline said about about Mary Lamb and and and, and putting right and wanting to <coughs> wanting to you know, and she describes in in a chapter on friendship very movingly what what it, you know the kinds of friendships and care and and love, and um, uh, it, it's moving, not because of the way Barbara writes it, but just because you can't help but be touched by some of the extraordinary friendships that emerge from those conditions. And in precisely the way that, that Charles Lamb describes her, his sister's um, act as, a, as, 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 as you know, sort of an object in her soul that she's caring for, that there's, there's an element of that in some of those descriptions. It's a very spare book, but written with an extraordinary economy, isn't it? And it's wonderful. And the other thing she talks about, there's just a very impassioned, clear paragraph on poverty and how poverty drives you mad. I just wanted to respond to that because I do feel that one of the gifts of feminism in the yeah, 70s exactly. and 80s have been the extraordinary friendships between women which have at least rivaled heterosexual relationships for heterosexual women, that is mm -hmm. what I'm saying. And I was just thinking when you were speaking then that one definition of feminism would be that it, it was, it licensed, we licensed each other's insanity and we tolerated and released into the public domain a certain form of psychic ambivalence um, about what it meant to be in a relationship, about what it meant to be coherent about... So I'm just thinking of feminism in a way, mm. and I'm just thinking out loud here, as a sort of psychoanalytic project mm. to do with the kinds of things that women could say to each other and hear each other saying, and, and then present them to the culture as creative and or nonsense, inaudible or frightening, and then deal with the consequences of that. And Barbara's book, although I haven't read it yet, I think would be would fall into that. I mean, I think extent. that's true, but I think the actual form of organization of the women's liberation movement was precisely that. It was women speaking and being listened to by others and no interruption. And that is very a very interesting challenge Talking to because usually women go into comfort or to identify or to say, yeah, you had a terrible holiday. I know I did it. It was like this. And the whole form of... Mm -hmm actually speaking experience was the original basis of how women came to analyze their experience and see that there was linkages, that these were social phenomena that were experienced individually, but, but practice across culture. Let's open it up. Please come in and um, stick your hand up, and we'll get a mic to you. I think Dawn will run around with a mic. Okay. There's a signifier missing, and it's horror. 
And it seems to me that this wonderful poem that Jacqueline uh, recited to us is about horror. And the quote that you give, which I think comes from Mad's Bad and Sad, of uh, what slips through the intercies of no, it comes civil... from me. It comes from Sorry. Sally. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's your phrase, Sally. It's a wonderful phrase. And it seems to me that that, in some way, that which slips through the intercies of civilized society is something to do with horror. And that Pennell recognized that somehow in his way of speaking about these mad women that he was working with and trying to understand and find a way with, that he recognized that they were in some ways a symptom of society. Um, and I wondered if you could say something about that, about horror. Because that, I mean, to, to add something to that, Lacan tells us actually that hysteria is one of the things that's closest to the unconscious. Um, and that hysteria is um, a form of structure which is intricated into the other, into society. And a lot of these sad, mad and bad women are clearly being described as in some way as having some form of hysteria as opposed to being maybe sad, mad or bad, but something which can't be spoken about and horror can't be spoken about. It cannot be directly addressed. Yeah, let's take a few questions so that we can find a way to organize thoughts. Hello. Uh, I'd like to ask what happened to the women that were released from the asylums by Pinel. And the reason is, when I saw, the, saw it at the exhibition, what it put into my mind was when they closed the harems, when, with the fall of the Ottoman Empire, and they so-called liberated all these women from the harems. But they were so institutionalized that many of them just ended up on the street and they didn't know how to look after themselves, right. fell into prostitution, all sorts of terrible things. And I just, it, it just came into my mind, and I wonder, well, what was the story of these women after they were released from this asylum? Mm -hmm. Hi, um, I wanted to bring up something that I read um, in Jacqueline in one of your books um, on not being able to sleep, about how Freud identifies with his hysterical patients because he knows, if only um, unconsciously, that he is a woman. And I wanted to, to ask everybody in the panel what psychoanalysis tries to do or attempts to do with that kind of knowledge about a person. You, you touched on it earlier about tolerating. Um, toleration. Can we leave now before we have to answer any of those questions? Okay, why don't we start? Why don't we start? Who wants to t pick up on the point about horror? Well, I think it's what Susie and I were just talking about. I mean, I totally agree with you, and I'm very glad that you evoked Lacan, because what he says is that the reason why he, in his four discourses, university, master, analysis, hysteria, 
he puts the hysteric a quarter turn away from analysis because she is in touch with her unconscious truth. And what he says is the membrane between the unconscious and the conscious is drawn so tight mm. that you can see through into the bottom. I think it's one of his most graphic images. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. But I think in a way that exchange between Susie and I a little bit earlier was about whether the purpose of analysis is to allow the horror into the room or to assuage it or both. Um, and what is tolerable inside the analytic setting and what, then what becomes tolerable outside it. So it leads to the question of what happens when Pino's patients go out into the street. It's an inside-outside question. Yeah, I, 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 I suppose what I'm thinking in relation to the question of horror, and it does, it does lead back to the little conversation we had, is, is psychoanalysis or is the psychoanalytic situation simply a place of containment? Or is it a place of transformation? You know, and how much, it, it seems to me it lives with those, with those difficulties. Because actually the minute that horror can be felt, if it, it's affect laden, it's not an idea, it is an affect. The moment something can be felt and heard and recognized by self and other in that space, something different happens. It may get intensified, it may get modified, but it doesn't stay static. So it's not simply a form of containment and reception. It's something very, very complex goes on. So, which I can't respond to the harem idea, but I think it's really interesting. Um, But I, I, I think that's all I wanted to say about that. What about you? you know, I, <laughs> I don't think I can add anything, actually. On the penal women let out onto the street? I, I assumed you would know them. No, I mean, I don't know. What happened? I mean, they, they, were, they were treated. And uh, I'm sure, as somebody said quietly, was it someone from the, here or in the audience that the same thing happened in the 1970s and Exactly. 80s? That's when they, they closed the asylum. And they closed the asylums in Britain. And, and, and people went into care into the community with very mixed results. I, I think there was a distinction, Zopetriar, that there was a release of prostitutes. Uh, who had been uh, rounded up and taken in during the revolution, and it wasn't actually a release of women who they, who said they were, they were insane. Well, there you are. Of course, of course, Freud begins there because yeah. in the Salpetriere, the hysterics were bung together with the epileptics and the yeah. criminally insane, because they were mimetic. They imitated their symptoms, so they got classified as part mm. of the same group. And the moment Freud started listening, as Susie says to them, then they got separated out. In fact, they got separated out before by Charcot, who said they were a separate men medical disorder, which gave them great respect, but sort of classified them as degenerates or hereditary. So it was a, it was a double move. It was like, let's give them their space, but we can only do this by making it a knowable, definable medical condition. And Freud then makes the next move, which is to say, no, we all have the proclivity to hysteria, if you listen to them, it's all of us. So it's like a double move of sort of separating out and then spreading. I mean, it's crucial to me that Freud failed to hypnotize mm -hmm. Lucy. Because the moment he failed to hypnotize Lucy, he either could have said only hypnotizable people have an unconscious, 
in which case we were back to Janet and Brewer that only people with a certain kind of mind have an unconscious. We're back to square one. Or we had to find another method because we all have an unconscious. We all have a widespread, as he put it, proclivity to hysteria. So for me, that, that turning point was when he failed to hypnotize Lucy. Um, but there are really difficult questions here about inside and outside that I, I don't know how to answer. Well, the mimetic uh, quality of hysteria was there right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. It's extraordinary how consistent that is from, from Bedlam onwards, really. Freud is a woman. Should I try and answer that? Freud's a woman, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, well, Juliet Mitchell has a brilliant chapter on this in Mad Men and Medusas, where she has a it's called Freud's Hysteria, right? And her argument is that Freud knew himself to be a hysteric, um, but subsequent psychoanalysis has not been able to handle that, and they've re-feminized the disorder. Mm -hmm. Not people like Christopher Burles, by the way, and not indeed Juliet Mitchell, but that there's a real issue there about Freud's own hysteria and how the, the psychiatric profession can't bear to think about him like that. But I've also always found Sandra Gilman very useful on this, which is, if Freud was a woman, it's because he was a Jew. Exactly. Which is to say that the hystericization of the Jew in Vienna or in Austria and Germany was if you were a Jew, you were a woman because you were sort of irrational and oversensual and corporal and physical and disgusting. I mean, the misogyny behind anti-Semitism turned Freud effectively into a woman. Well, so when... Intellect. No, no, I'm not saying he didn't have an no, intellect. But, but so when students say to me, well, he was a Viennese patriarch, and therefore all his thinking is phallogocentric, which is a very, very common argument... I always say, one, find out a little bit more about Vienna, because it was the countercultural city. And secondly, he wasn't just a patriarch. Although he was, I don't think he got up and looked after his kids in the night. You know, I don't think he did any babysitting and all of that. No, of course he was a patriarch. And he did some terrible things on, along the patriarchal axis. But he also was struggling with an identification as a woman. And therefore, it's simply a way of... The, the most amazing moment is in his analysis of Irma's injection which has been read as him infiltrating the mind and the body of Irma. And at a moment he says, I felt it in my own body. Mm -hmm. The identification with Irma's pain in her shoulder. So you can see him on the one hand trying to nail it, and on the other hand becoming it. And I think psychoanalysis goes on oscillating between those two positions to this day, in a way. Do we interpret or do we become? I assume that's a problem of the transference. I assume that's a problem of of empathy and listening that you were talking I don't think about. it's a problem. I think it's the whole job. It's the whole job. <laughs> and it's not a problem because it happens. You have, you have the, you have, that is what the structure of the se session allows you to do. It allows you to absorb and have a counter-transference at a bodily level like that so that you, you then have a chance to, you're invited to experience what the other is a version of what the other is experiencing, so that you can find some kind of way to make an offering back between the two of you. So it's not, it, it's that's the job. <laughs> you know, one thing that was striking me about the title, and I don't know whether it whether it strikes the two of you, and it's a while since I've read the book because I read it when it first came out and did a lot of things with Lisa, but you know, I, I, I don't remember the structure of this. But one of the things that always struck me 
in, in working with women is that they go from feeling sad, which is an unacceptable feeling, to feeling mad, which is an unacceptable feeling. And if those feelings cannot be countenanced, then the feeling is, I'm bad. So that if the affect, again, if the feeling of sad can be held, if the grief, the horror, the confusion, the ambivalence, the sorrow can be held and can be felt and can be find some form of expression that is is seen, I guess, then it doesn't become the thing of the bad, whereas you don't have, you know, the bad is the attempt to fix. It's the defense structure attempting to fix. How dare I feel this way? It's my fault that I'm doing it. I shouldn't be feeling this way. I'm bad for feeling this way. Any more offerings? In the three quarters of the way back? And then the Sorry, back. I'm Italian and... Uh, I would like to ask a question which is nothing to do much, but is much to do about uh, um, the new position of a psychoanalysis, which tended to deny the 90, the 100% heritage uh, of madness or disease, uh, schizophrenia and everything. Uh, to say to society or historical background, and uh, at the moment uh, the position is psychoanalysis, uh, the illness, mental illness, is to do much to do with bi biological, mm -hmm. which is the new position. Is it? Um. It's a long time ago since I read it, so forgive me if I've misremembered, but your mentioning of Freud's hysteria reminded me of a chapter in Elaine Showalter's book, The Female Malady, mm -hmm. where she talks about the First World War and mm -hmm. the impact that that had on men, and it seemed to link some of the things you'd spoken about in terms of the, the sort of um, etiology of hysteria. Um, I'm also aware that I'm mentioning men as one of the few men here, so apologies for that. And there's one other question in there, or comment, and then, and then I think we'll have to answer, and then we'll have to close it. Mine was just more of an observation. When Susie said earlier, um, one of the first things said was the, lady, the woman from Frim Barnet, who said she'd like to go for a cup of tea, and it was nice. And I've um, been reading loads of case books from Bethlehem for the, a lot of genteel poor women, and a lot of um, the other asylums that Colney Hatch and things. And a lot of it did seem that you went, lots of women went in because they were exhausted, hungry, tired, had far too many children, often perhaps even killed a child, and actually good food, a bit of work, a bit of thing, and they were out, presumed cured. It's, I thought nothing really changes. Except they don't exist anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't you say that? No, 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 no,
and I think arguments can because it's because it's had such a useful history because it's been around and it's this, it gets redescribed all the time. It gets described in nineteenth century terms. It gets described in early twentieth century around First World War and yeah. and. And people have attempted, uh, Elaine Shaw also would describe, for example, Gulf War Syndrome, which I, I think is really contestable as a hysteria, as opposed to anything in the sense of biological, not in terms of schizophrenia, but in terms of, you know, she wouldn't accept that any of the chemicals had any kind of um, impact. So I don't, mm. but, you know, you're the historian. Well, no, that is what Elaine Showalter does. She follows, she traces, um, she does trace the history sort of through the First World War and, and shell shock and war shock and the different man manifestations of that and the different symptomatology, but not very, not in very much detail. And it is, it has got a very particular and deeply, profoundly rich history, actually. And neurasthenia and hysteria, which, I mean, it's one of the points that, one of the points that Lisa Opinionese brings out in Mad, Bad and Sad is there are many wonderful things we've you know, one is the, one is the continuity actually mm -hmm. of symptoms and diagnosis through time, um, and another is this this idea that you know that sanity is shallow, which all the all the uh, humane radical um, mind doctors believe, but also that 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 history yes it shifts and it's very close to very close proximity to what's defined and redefined as neurasthenia. You know, he, or you can, or is just as in, I think the way the point Jacqueline made from the book, which is that madness is partial and it's um, it, it, it's momentary, it's 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 episodic. Very often, people, as we all know, probably you made that point in this room knows that. But it's the, a point that many of the mind doctors make, isn't it, in the book that that you're not of the humane ones, not the not the biological hereditary ones and the ones who believe in evolutionary biology and the ones who believe in, um, uh, you know, degeneracy and all that. But the ones who believe that it's a problem of life uh, do think that it can, that madness is something that can afflict any walks of anyone at any time, given appalling conditions or internal con conflict. But the, 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 the point about shell shock I think the interesting thing about shell shock, which is taking us right off the point, so we won't go on about it, is how long it mm. went on after the First World War, how long people were living with it, mm. and how long, um, and how many people it affected, apart from the people it affected. The historian of that is a man called Edward Barham. But also Will Self's umbrella is very, yeah. very good about it. Is it? Uh, yeah, I just forgotten lunatics is should be on everyone's book list. I just wanted to pick up the point about biology. Mm -hmm. I think we're talking about a major regression in attitudes mm -hmm. to mental health. Mm -hmm. um, I think it goes with quantification of therapeutic procedures, classification, measurement, and containment. And I've been very struck by Darren Leader's last short book, Strictly Bipolar where he really just puts in a plea for the term to be dropped. And he wants it dropped, he wants it replaced by manic depressive, because manic depressive allows you to think about what somebody might be depressed about, i.e. it puts you back into the realm of meaning and outside biology. And I think it's very interesting in this right-wing government 
where everything has to be quantified and measurable and classified according to end results and calculation, that the move to biology should go hand in hand with that, which is, of course, something feminism has always said. The biological argument, even if it has a grain of truth in it, is nearly always reactionary. So I think, I think what you said is very important. Finally, just in relationship to World War One, I, I think it, that it... Didn't like you apologizing for being, I didn't, didn't know whether you were apologizing for the fact there were so few men in the room or whether you were one of the few men in the room, but I like the ambiguity of that. Um, but the, for me, the most striking thing about Freud and psychoanalysis in World War I is that that leads him to reconceptualize his whole topography, and it leads to the concept of the death drive, which is to say, how come these soldiers are repeating the experience that they could not bear and that they barely survived? So it really opens the door into something which I want to call the perversity of our psychic life, which is perhaps not reducible in some simple way to economic conditions or social injustice, but which is what psychoanalysis can also bear to think about, and which this government certainly can't bear to think about because it's too busy being perverse on its own terms. Well, I think that links to the point about horror, actually. Yes, the horror of World War I. Yes, absolutely. I, th I think I want to make an end comment which links the biologizing of distress with a point that Jacqueline made earlier on. And it's, there's a whole new piece of work going on in the only bit of kind of molecular biology I like, which is, which is epigenetics. And there have been some interesting papers out about the transmission of trauma at an epigenetic level, changing changing the internal biological cellular experience. The, the, I, I won't go through the whole thing. Anyway, what's interesting about this is that you don't need the, the biological to take the metaphor or to take the reality, which is that we pass on trauma. And your point about who's carrying the trauma for whom. And Anybody who does family therapy or couple therapy or even looks at a family or even were to analyze what the hell we've all been doing in this room tonight would be able to see the ways in which each one of us will take on something for all of us in a way to make the whole of, of all these very complex psyches. So I, th I think it's very important when we hear the biological argument to, to actually think what is wanting to be misunderstood here, and what actually needs to be heard about distress. And how can we own this distress as being uh, a production, if you like, of this particular family, this particular relationship, this particular culture. So thank you very, very much, everybody. Thank you so much, Jacqueline. Thank you so much, Sally. Thank I think you, it's Susan. really been interesting. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you.